Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Colin Roach. He's a chief investment officer at Discipline Funds. They focus on low-fee, systematic, diversified, index-based investing. Discipline Funds also operates an ETF, DCSF, where this philosophy is applied in a single fund. Colin is a prolific investing blogger. He's been blogging since the financial crisis, and on his blog, Pragmatic Capitalism, he discusses macroeconomics, the banking system. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. VSG, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So how'd you first get interested in investing and what was your investing journey? Like, how'd you start out and, and how'd you get to your current approach? <laughs> That's funny, actually. I In college, my when I was trying to figure out what my major was going to be, I actually wanted to be more of like a marketing major. So, and I remember talking, I was at my oldest brother's graduation and I was talking to my uncle and he, uh, we're talking about what my major should be. And he said, you got to go into finance. It's the only place where you can make any money. <laughs> and so that kind of shook me. And I was, that was the point where I kind of pivoted towards, I was already in the business school. So I then became a finance major and studied a lot of macro econ and finance and was always sort of interested in the markets and investing and a really, I mean, gosh, I was a really like old school. One of the first things I ever did was I read all of Warren Buffett's annual letters. So like I went back and I read even like the old Buffett partnership letters, like the ones that you know, 20 years ago, these things were almost impossible to even find online. And so, you know, these are the pre-Berkshire letters. And these are, I mean, in terms of education, I always tell people, if you're starting out investing, these are the first things you should read because, and read them through from start to finish, because every single one has sort of at least one big nugget of indispensable knowledge. And I was just sort of hooked after reading all these and, you know, dreaming of becoming like some sort of like, you know, Buffett-like investor. And I basically ended up out of college. I worked at Merrill Lynch for a few years and I was on like a big old school team where we were doing a sort of a similar strategy to what Buffett was doing, I guess, where we were buying mostly value stocks and very old school buy, you know, quality dividend earning type stocks. And I just didn't, like the fee structure mostly the the way that Merrill operated so I went independent and I've been independent ever since and you know my I guess my my sort of big life-changing moment was during the financial crisis when I started pragmatic capitalism the blog and it just caught fire during the financial crisis and we were talking before we we jumped on here that we were doing that website was doing like 2 million page views a month at, at some points. I mean, I probably could have just, I was making more money from the blog advertising than I could have ever imagined. I probably could have turned that thing into just like its own little media source. But yeah, so kind of caught lightning in a bottle. And then, you know, transitioned weirdly back into sort of retail asset management and working with people trying to help them 
you know, implement really sort of simple, diversified portfolios, implementing a lot of the the broader lessons I've learned over the course of my career. Awesome. Yeah. So on your blog, Pragmatic Capitalism, you've really helped me understand the Fed and the banking system. So after the financial crisis, I was really in the mindset that the Fed's response was going to cause serious inflation. I mm-hmm. thought M2 growth meant inflation down the line, and that was just going to be this linear relationship. And your blog helped explain how that's kind of nonsense. So can you explain to the audience why that's not true, that M2 growth just leads to inflation and what so many people got wrong after the yeah. crisis? Yeah. You know, it's crazy. One of the things that when I started the blog and the reason why I think it was, it caught you know, a lot of people's attention was that I was explaining things in a very sort of operational sense, which 20 years ago, it just, there was not a lot of material like that on the internet where you couldn't really find out, you know, how did the financial system or how does the monetary system really work at like a sort of a baseline, like first principles understanding. And I was writing about a lot of this stuff from more of like an accounting sense, like a a really truly like trying to define the monetary system almost in the same way that like, how does a car operate? You know, like once you can kind of understand the basic functions of an automobile, you can understand the parameters in which it can actually operate, you know, like a car that, you know, has a specific type of engine with a specific number of gears, it can't go 200 miles an hour, you know? So once you sort of understand the the basic functions of it, you can then begin to really hammer down, okay, what are the parameters and what are the ways in which this thing might operate based on its actual under underlying operational realities? And that was the, the thing I really wanted to develop with my understanding of the monetary system. And I that started with like a lot of really simple questions, like what is money? And when you get into things like M2, you start to realize that the definitions of money are really sort of opaque and they they vary and they vary essentially in certain environments and for certain institutions. So in terms of like quantitative easing, the thing that was really eye-opening for me was I happened to know, I had a few colleagues who worked in Japanese banks and they had been through iterations of quantitative easing for, you know, 20 years because they'd been implementing all this stuff. And like Richard Koo's book, The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics was really influential on me and talking to these guys, they were, I was sort of able to get almost like an insider's view of how these things really worked from like an operational sense. And the Japanese were funny in that they were basically telling me, they were like, you know, everything you see in the media is going to be wrong about the way this program works. Everyone's going to say that it's printing money, that it causes inflation, that it will lead banks to then like multiply their, their balance sheets. And it's all wrong. It all does the exact opposite, or at least it doesn't do what people expect it to, to the extent that it will, that they, you know, they think it will. And the basic underlying premise there was that when the government runs a deficit, so when they spend more than they tax, they issue bonds. And I think the the right way to think about bonds is that bonds are very, very money-like. Like I like to, to basically think of a treasury bond as like a, it's like a, a savings account, basically. A treasury bill is essentially, it's it's virtually money. And so when the government issues these instruments, they are issuing net new financial assets. And those are the things that I would say are the things that really expand the money supply or the you know the quantity of assets outstanding 
Whereas what quantitative easing really does is it's the Fed coming in after the fact and they're changing the composition of those assets. So specifically in the case of, of the QEs that we've all kind of you know come to know in the last 10 years, what the Fed is doing is they're creating reserves and banks are operating as intermediaries to go out and buy treasury bonds from somebody. And they're, so the bank is giving somebody a deposit. So they're switching what is essentially a savings account for a checking account for the, the, the seller of the bond. And then the bank is getting reserves. But the kicker with all this is that reserves stay in the interbank market. Reserves are just how banks settle payments. So issuing more reserves doesn't necessarily put more money in the hands of consumers. And in fact, what quantitative easing does for consumers is it reduces their incomes because it gives you a checking account, a deposit account for what used to be a T-bond or a high yield or higher yielding savings account. And so from the consumer facing level, what it does is it, it keeps the quantity of assets the same, you know, especially if we assume that the deficit is, let's say the government is running, you know, just a, a balanced budget, quantitative easing just changes the composition. I think that was the really big eye-opening understanding about quantitative easing. And the, there's a lot of debate about you know, what are the side effects of that? Like, does the person who now owns that deposit, do they go out and do they feel like they need to bid up stocks or do they go out and buy high yield bonds? And there's a lot of debate about that. But from a core operational perspective, what QE does is really simple. It changes the composition of the private sector's financial assets without necessarily expanding those the quantity of the financial assets. Gotcha. Understood. Yeah, that's a great explanation. So you touched on a little bit. So you talked about how some of that money could have flown into the stock market. So there's this argument among like perma bears where they're saying that the Fed has been inflating a series of bubbles and that mm -hmm. QE, even though it didn't lead to an increase in inflation, that it all went into the stock market and it fueled this bubble and eventually it's all going to collapse. What would What would you say to someone who's making that argument? I would say that there are other factors that play a much more important role. I don't want to say that there's no impact of this, because I think that, frankly, I think that would be sort of naive to assume that, you know, if you, if everybody gets more money, more deposits, you know, of course, like there could certainly be influential factors that drive people to bid up stocks or whatever. But I would argue that there's just much more important factors. And so, for instance, if like a good example of this is like if a company is if a company's operating performance is declining does it really matter how much money is outstanding to bid on that company my basic thesis would be that the value of that those shares of that company they're going to decline in value because the operating performance of that company is declining it doesn't yeah the quantity of money might matter and the you know people who are getting more money might feel like you know they need to to own you know, that company for whatever reason. But at a baseline level, the operating performance of that company is much more important than just the amount of money that's outstanding to bid on that asset. And so there's so many factors like that that influence, you know, the performance of corporate America in the long term that are more important than just what the Fed is doing that I would argue that it probably has a tangential effect, but there's so many other factors that are so much more important to corporate America. And the, the big one, and this is the one that 
really, I think, sort of debunks this narrative is that the performance of corporate America at, a, at an operating level has improved really substantially over the last 10 years. So when you look at something like quantitative easing, you oftentimes see like charts of the Fed balance sheet versus the stock market. Well, yeah, there's a correlation there. But what people often leave out of this narrative is that corporate profits are also at record highs. You know, earnings per share are at record highs. And so- Margins. Yeah, there's a there are real fundamental arguments that actually prove or justify why stocks are actually increasing in value. And so, and to me, you know, printing more money doesn't necessarily just add to corporate performance. It can in certain environments, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Apple is going to go out and be innovative or create, you know, better products in the future. Yeah, I agree. And I think when you look under the hood and you look at the individual stocks, like, yeah, there are some, there are a lot of stocks that don't make a lot of sense and they've been inflated to crazy values, but it's not like yeah. money is just blindly flowing into stocks. Like there's definitely a reaction to actual corporate performance that's happening. Right. Like you can definitely, like, I think looking at the last few years, like, I mean, I remember moments in 2021 where, you know, I was like looking around at some of these companies that were outperforming and it was like, you know, what, what the hell is wrong with people? Like, why are, why are some of these companies increasing in value at all? And so there are, I mean, people do stupid stuff and that, but to me, you know, you can kind of go back to like an efficient market, you know, thesis in the long run where, yeah, you know, stupid things happen in the short term, but in the long run, the, the fundamentals play out. Yeah, I totally agree. So you mentioned, we, we touched a little bit on deficits. So do you worry at all about the current high level of government debt relative to GDP in the US? Yeah, you know, I do. I, I probably don't come across as being that worried about it, but I think there are reasonable arguments that the federal government seems to be sort of increasingly getting out of control. I mean, there seems to be more and more stories about corruption and just, you know, lost money at the Pentagon and stuff like that. And the defense budget just you know, being completely, you know, unaccounted for. And so I don't know. I definitely worry about the potential that we could be increasingly in an environment where the deficit is perpetually so big that you get this sort of underlying sort of tailwind to inflationary pressures. But at the same time, I think people have a tendency to take a lot of this, you know, they exaggerate the real risks of this. So, I mean, like the the deficit as a percentage of GDP is not that out of the ordinary relative to the last 10 years. And so even though the deficit is large by a lot of measures, it's not, you know, is this an environment where it seems like this is going to cause like double digit inflation or or a hyperinflation? You know, that's oftentimes the worry that a lot of people have with this stuff. And I guess if it if it were to get really out of control, like substantially worse, that becomes a legitimate worry. But yeah, so I mean, my bottom line is like, I would argue that we're we're increasingly seeming to tiptoe into dangerous territory with the with the amount and the I think the the sort of, I think, tendency to think that that printing more money will always solve all the problems. Because I'm kind of a, I'm a very sort of traditional, I'm not really a Keynesian, but in the, in the sense of like thinking of economic policy, I'm very much like a counter-cyclical thinker. So meaning that 
when the economy is very good, I tend to to view policy as it should be tight. The government should tighten up the amount of spending that it does, and the Fed should get tighter, and the, the government should be there to sort of be the adult in the room who says, you know, when crazy, crazy things like 2021 are happening, the government should be the role model that sort of says, okay, you know, let's tighten things up because people selling fart jars and things like that is irrational. Okay. So rather than a lot of what they did was sort of the opposite where they, you know, they were spending more money and they were keeping rates at zero and they were doing a lot of things that were sort of pro-cyclical that made me really worrisome back in 2021. And and likewise, the opposite should happen in a in a deep panic. The government oftentimes is the person that needs to step up and be the adult in the room and say, okay, you guys are freaking out over things that are irrational. You know, we're going to be here to be the the adult in the room, and we're going to make sure that the system doesn't fall apart just because people are having a panic attack over things that you know are irrational. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. So, how do you think about the recent? rise in inflation that happened. So do you think of that as a, was it driven by monetary policy, physical policy? Was it primarily a supply chain phenomena unrelated to both? Or do you think it was a combination of all of those? Yeah, I think it was a combination. I mean, it's it's really hard to pin it down, especially because, I mean, COVID was such a weird environment just to begin with. I mean, it was sort of the perfect recipe for getting inflation just because I mean, the most basic economic model of inflation is you you put a bunch of more money in people's hands and you tell them not to do anything. Well, they're going to go out and bid, you know, tell them not to work. They're going to go out and bid up the price of everything because you're not creating the real resources that actually give the money value that create demand for goods and services and the money in the first place. And so COVID was just this perfect recipe for, for a highish inflation because the government ran huge, huge deficits. You know, so in comparison to like 2008, and I think this is one of the really valuable lessons relative to the financial crisis is that in the financial crisis, we spent like $800 billion on the on the, rec- the rescue package, which compared to what we did during COVID was minuscule. I mean, we spent $7 trillion in deficits over the course of like two and a half years. So- I mean, really, really huge numbers relative to what we did during the financial crisis. And at the same time, we were telling everybody to stay home, you know, don't go to work, don't be as productive. And so, of course, you know, we got supply chain issues because we weren't making as much stuff. And then you had the the government just sending people money and, you know, through huge deficits. And so you got prices got bid up a lot. I think the the kicker with this, though, is that it was it was to a large degree sort of a one-time price level adjustment. And I think that's the thing that some people in the last year or so have, I think, been sort of, I think, wrongly worried about, that this was going to be like a perpetual motion machine that, you know, the momentum from all this was going to just continue in perpetuity. And we're finally starting to see a lot of this, you know, slow down to a meaningful degree where you know, we're beginning to see that monetary policy is really biting. The higher interest rates really are biting. The government is still running, you know, relatively large deficits, but it's still as a, you know, relative to especially COVID, you know, much smaller, much tighter policy in general. Gotcha. So you don't think that this is like a structural issue. You think that this was kind of a one-time phenomenon driven by COVID and that it's coming down. 
Yeah, it's taking it's taking longer than than I expected, longer than I think a lot of people expected in large part. I mean, you got, you know, the 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 whammy with the Ukraine war was another big one where when you got that big jump in commodities, I mean, that kind of that caused the whole transitory narrative to really blow up because as soon as commodity prices exploded higher after the war, you know, you got an extra bump in inflation there that kind of it 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 exaggerated or extended everything by like a year, basically. And we're finally seeing like commodity prices are one of my favorite real time inflation indicators. And I mean, we're down what, you know, 20% year to date, 30% off the highs. Yeah. Um, and all the wild things that were driven up during that time period, like lumber have all. Come yeah. Back down. So a lot of it started to moderate. You still have a lot of, um, you know, the way that like the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures a lot of this stuff is sort of funny in that. And this was one of the things I talked about a lot in 2022 was that things like owner's equivalent rent are big, big components of like the CPI. And they are inherently lagging because what the BLS tries to do, especially with shelter, is they take measurements biannually. And the purpose of that basically is to try to mimic or reflect the way that consumers actually experience rent increases more accurately. So like... You know, when we see owner's equivalent rent go up by 10% year over year, well, everybody in the country doesn't actually experience a 10% increase in their rent. You know, you might have the same rent as you did a year ago or two years ago, whereas some other people are seeing their landlords are increasing the rent. So it's kind of this weird, staggered sort of adjustment in prices, whereas, you know, a lot of the other prices people actually experience when the price of gasoline goes up, people experience a real time increase in that price. And so the BLS tries to sort of measure this in a more elongated way that reflects the way consumers actually experience it. So it what that does to inflation though in the CPI is it'll have a lagging effect where in the front end of it shelter won't have a big impact and then we're right now we're in sort of like this peak period where inflation in shelter is is really high. Because all those adjustments that were elongated over the last 18 months are now hitting. And so even though like commodities are are down a lot, the shelter component of CPI is still at its very highs. And so going forward, especially, you know, we kind of know from a lot of the real-time indicators of CPI or, or rents and things like that and shelter prices, they're coming down. They're not negative, but they're coming. They're they're certainly not eight point one percent like the CPI says. They're closer to like maybe you know three to four percent year over year. So, and that's gonna that's gonna be a big headwind for inflation in the next sort of like eighteen months. Gotcha. So that's a good topic to get into. So we're talking about like rents versus inflate rents versus inflation and real estate prices. So how do you think about that? How how they're all related together? I know you've posted things about how rents and mortgage payments are kind of out of sync right now. Yeah. So do you think inflation comes down with real estate prices coming down? Is that is that basically what you think is going to happen? The way I tend to think of it is that, so house prices get bid up and this gives landlords pricing power, essentially. They, they're able to then you know increase the amount of rent because the value of the home went up and they're able to justify, well, you know, the literally the way the BLS calculates it is owner's equivalent rent. So what is if the owner occupied shelter was actually rented out, what would that person actually be able to rent that thing for? And we're in this sort of like super strange environment where prices went up so much 
and they went up so much more relative to incomes that landlords have pricing power, but they don't have as much pricing power as the actual home prices reflect. So like landlords couldn't increase the, the rents by 50% tomorrow, even though home prices have technically gone up by 50% relative to a few years ago. And so to me, when you look at this, this there's this big disparity between the way that home prices actually went up in value relative to the sustainability of rents. And to me that I think that going forward, this has to compress to some degree. And we saw this typically when the the ratio of rents relative to home prices gets as wide as it does. I mean, we've only really seen this during the financial crisis. It compresses and it can compress in a lot of different ways. You know, rents can go up or rents can stay flat and home prices can crash. I think it's going to be sort of a convergence of the two where, you know, let's say that let's say incomes grow at three to 4% for the next few years. Well, that gives consumers the ability to continue to, to, you know, have higher and higher demand for higher rent prices, but landlords are still limited in how much they can, you know, they can actually increase rents for people. So if you assume that rents are going to increase by like four to 5% over the course of the next few years, I think it's reasonable then to assume that home prices have to converge. And that means that, you know, in my view, I think that home prices, it wouldn't be shocking to me if from the peak to trough, we see sort of a 10 to 15% decline in home prices where you don't have the sort of waterfall decline that we had in 2006 because the dynamics are very different. You have the, you know, the inventory problem is very different. The The sustainability of balance sheets is very different. Consumers in general are much, they have much healthier balance sheets. So you you don't get the panicky sort of forced selling that we got in 2008 in real estate, but you still get something where the current prices are just, they're simply unsustainable, especially relative to mortgage payments where people, you know, even though inventories are low, people still have a choice of, of where to live. And when you look at things like, you know, a $10,000 mortgage payment versus a, you know, the equivalent style of home that you can rent for $6,000, well, consumers, they're not morons, you know, they'll, they'll run that relative, you know, by rent analysis, and they'll say, okay, you know, it's sure, maybe I could afford the $10,000 a month payment in for the mortgage, but it's just totally irrational for me to do that when I know I could rent this house for the next two years and wait it out. And who knows, you know, maybe, maybe home prices don't change that much, but it's certainly a much higher risk to buy the house in and hold that thing for the next two years than it is to just rent and you know take the certainty of the lower payment in the rental market and that's kind of where the national market is right now yeah that makes sense i mean so you're saying basically that home prices are probably going to come down but it's not going to be a 2008 style debacle yeah i wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of a you know like a i mean god to be honest i think that the the linchpin in all of this is still it's the Fed, it's interest rates. And the thing that really puts, I think, a, a ceiling on home prices is the fact that the Fed is just so tight with interest rates right now that with mortgage rates at 7%, you've you've locked so many people out of the home buyer's market at that rate that the demand just isn't there. So even though inventory is low, the demand is also inherently very low because you just don't have people that can borrow at the same rate. And so in that sort of an environment, a lot of this just depends on where is the Fed going to be. And 
in two to three years, I suspect they'll be much lower. They, I mean, they want to get the overnight rate back to like two to 3%. So right now they're at five or so, and they want to be back at two to three, but the, the path to getting there is going to be a slow one because inflation just is, is proving stickier than a lot of people thought it would be. And, and so you're going to see this sort of, unless we get some sort of like, you know, outlier event, some sort of really panicky sort of, you know, 20 style cascading downturn in the economy or something, the Fed is going to be very cautious, I think, in in terms of reducing interest rates. And that means that mortgage rates are going to be, they're going to be really high until, you know, we sort of start to transition into that environment. And that means that the demand for housing is just going to be very tepid. Yeah, and the economy overall seems really resilient in the face of these high interest rates. Like there's some drama with banks in the market, but overall, like the unemployment rate remains super low, and it seems like the job market is really robust and things are. Yeah, still it'll growing. be interesting to see. You know, the way I kind of think of of all this inside of like my framework is that the credit cycle so far is following a very sort of classic playbook in the sense that interest rates. When the Fed lifts interest rates, you know, it doesn't have an immediate impact on the economy. You know, monetary policy has this sort of infamous, you know, variable lags over time. And so I remember, for instance, back in 2006, when Alan Greenspan was talking about, you know, the big Greenspan conundrum and how higher interest rates weren't seeming to have this big impact on the economy. And we all we all know how that ended up, you know, so this isn't. You know, I've been pretty vocal. I don't think this is 2008, but I still think that credit markets are going to bite at some point. I mean, at least the the extension of credit is going to start to bite. And we're starting to see that with, you know, the senior loan officer surveys and things like that. Banks are becoming very, very tight. And so that the quantity of loans that are going to be made in the course of the next 12 to 18 months is going to be nothing like we saw in the last, say, two to three years. And that you know, it doesn't mean that economic doom is on the horizon, but it does mean that, you know, I've been saying this is going to be sort of a muddle through environment. And I think that when you've got the housing market is sort of fragile and just tepid as it is, and then the credit markets as fragile as they are, you've got a recipe for very sort of sluggish growth with the potential that you get sort of an asymmetric risk to the downside, where if banks tighten a lot more, then I suspect they will. Or if, you know, let's say this banking panic gets a lot worse than it currently is, you've got a lot more risk of sort of a, a downside asymmetric risk there than, than the alternative, which would be, you know, are we more likely to have a big boom here or are we more likely to have, you know, something that's more reflective of like an economic bust? And I would argue that although my baseline is muddle through sort of tepid growth, the likelihood of a boom with monetary policy where it is, is just, it's super low. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, with the banking crisis that we've had lately, like the failure of SVB, do you think that the Fed is, that you'll see more of this based on the Fed actions? Like the yield curve is inverted. That's bad for bank balance sheets. Do you think we're going to see more SVB style situations? Yeah, I I mean, that I expect that to be sort of a persistent theme. The good news is that we, and we know this from the Fed's response, is that the Fed's very much on top of this stuff. So that's one of the the other things that makes this very different from 2008 was that the Fed, I think, was very surprised by the depth of problems in 2008. Whereas now, 
Like they've got all of these policies sort of on the back shelf, ready to just pull off and implement in the case of, you know, you probably remember all the the four letter facilities that were implemented back during the financial crisis. And they've got all these things lined up, ready to go. So anytime there's a hiccup in the payment system, the Fed now is ready to jump in and put out fires. And so, you know, that's the good news. The bad news is that in this sort of an environment, I mean, you've got you've got 10 years of of low interest rates that the entire economy really adjusted to. And so the entire economy became, you know, adapted to this very low interest rate environment. So you've got all these credit markets that are based on very low interest rates that now over the course of the next few years, assuming the Fed stays where they're at with interest rates, all these markets have to adjust to this new normal. And that's a that's a really bad environment for borrowing and for banks because banks now the the cost of of borrowing for the for banks is very high and the ability for them to lend and adjust their balance sheets to this new normal where they you know ideally they'd like to be able to you know borrow at 5 and lend at 8 and the problem is that they can't roll over their loan books fast enough to actually you know, get their balance sheet to reflect that eight, which is where they would like things to be. And so it's sort of a worst case scenario in a lot of ways for a lot of these, especially the smaller banks that have more fragile balance sheets, because now the cost of their liabilities has surged because the the Fed has increased interest rates so much, and they just can't turn over their loan book fast enough to actually make themselves more profitable. And so any bank that's got sort of underlying balance sheet issues or even small worries it becomes at risk for either a run or, you know, Jim Bianco calls it a walk on the bank, which is, you know, sort of the scenario that we've seen play out where people I think are sitting around looking at a lot of these regional banks and they're saying, you know, God, I, I've got, you know, $50,000 at, you know, XYZ local bank and bank of America is right next door. And I know for a fact that the government will never let bank of America fail Whereas this local bank, who knows where it's going to be in five or 10 years? I know it's a weaker bank than Bank of America. It might be it might be a better bank in terms of like customer service. It almost certainly is. But I think a lot of people are finding themselves in that situation where they look at the the sort of eight big systematically important banks and they know the government's not going to let those banks fail. And so you're getting this walk on the banking system where people are just transitioning away from really small less stable regional banks. So do you think through that logic, do you think that the Fed's response and the Treasury's response to the SVB failure was the right one to really just reassure markets that, you know, your deposits are safe with smaller banks? To be honest, they've kind of tied themselves in knots here because the the way that FDIC insurance works is it's almost counterproductive in the sense that FDIC insurance really protects small banks. And that's really like one of the main purposes of FDIC insurance is that we have we have such a big banking system. We have so many banks in the United States that in order to protect the number of banks that we have, a lot of these banks rely on FDIC insurance to, I think, to, to reassure their depositors that their institution, despite being, you know, one one hundredth the size of Bank of America, that, hey, that institution is safe in part because we've got the same government guarantees that Bank of America does. And so 
we have this huge number of banks in the United States. And I think you could argue that we have we have thousands more banks than we probably need, in part because people use a lot of these banks, in part because they know that they're government guaranteed to a large degree. And so it's a weird situation where I think the, the government doesn't want to come out and say they'll explicitly back all deposits, but they also can't rescind FDIC insurance because they know that they, then there probably would be a run on all the small banks. So they almost need to explicitly say that all deposits are insured, but they don't, you know, they don't want to go that far either. So I don't know. They've kind of tied themselves in knots here where I think the banking system needs to shrink, but they, and the government probably knows that, but they don't want to exacerbate any of that. Yeah, especially especially right now. And then, I mean, you have to think about like what are the long term effects of this. Like, I know, I know one of the things that the SNL crisis back in the '90s was blamed on was increasing FDIC insurance. Like, I think they doubled it in the early '80s or something. And a lot of people said that's what caused the SNL crisis. So you also don't want something like that to happen. So yeah, they're definitely in a tough spot. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about the debt ceiling a little bit. So. You know, for anyone listening, we're recording this on May 23rd. The government has not yet reached a deal on the debt ceiling. What's your take on the current debt ceiling argument? Oh, boy. (laughs) The debt ceiling, I think it has to be one of the stupidest laws that exists. I I mean, the way that, (laughs) so to understand the way that the analogy that I like to use is that, you know, it's like eating a big meal and then holding your stomach hostage. I mean, your stomach needs to digest the food. And that's all Treasury is trying to do is that Congress passed legislation. And then, you know, that legislation results in the Treasury having to sell some bonds in order to finance that previous spending and or that previous legislation. And so the the Treasury is just trying to, to operate in the same way that your stomach would when it digests a meal that you consumed. And so to come in after the fact and then say, hey, we, we've we reached this limit and we're not going to allow the stomach to digest the food, it just it makes no sense. And, you know, people sometimes argue that, oh, no, no, this, this causes the government to have to reconsider its, you know, fiscal constraints. And I don't know. I, I think after looking at especially like the last like three or four administrations, like how much do any of these people really care about fiscal responsibility? I mean- you know, Obama spent a ton, Trump spent a ton, Biden is spending a ton. Like, I mean, are any of these people really that fiscally responsible or do they just like to to spread the narrative that they are? I, I'm not yeah. convinced any of them really care that much. They just, they want to spend money to their constituents. And if that adds to the deficit, you know, they're fine with it. But they like to grandstand during events like this and then, you know, make threats that, really don't make a lot of sense. But I mean, my basic view is that politicians typically just use this to grandstand and, you know, they're getting a lot of media right now. Like the, you know, they all get to come together at the end of this and say, we came to an agreement. We are reducing the size of the government by X amount of dollars. And look, this all worked out well. We didn't default. And, you know, we're going to, you know, now we're going to cost the taxpayers less. And, in the long run, I just I feel like the time for fiscal responsibility is it's before you eat the meal. You know, don't eat the meal and then come back and say, "Hey, you know, we need to barf some of this up." That's not that's not how this works. So there's a time for fiscal responsibility, and to me, 
the debt ceiling is this sort of counterproductive fake limit that even the, the idea that we're even talking about the risk of treasury bonds defaulting is so crazy. I mean, treasury bills, notes, and bonds are, they're the backbone of the entire financial system. Like in 2008, I remember when the reserve primary fund broke the buck, you know, went down to like 97 cents. That was an $86 billion fund. The treasury bill market or the, the treasury bond market is tens of trillions of dollars. And we're talking about the backbone of so many money market funds and, you know, the payment system and the financial system in general that you're talking about something that is is so much bigger, so much more dangerous than even like the reserve primary fund was. And people panicked over that. So to me, the the probability of legitimately defaulting, I think, is minuscule in large part just because it would be it really would be so catastrophic that it's it's unimaginable that people could be irresponsible enough to even let it happen. So I don't know. I think that they'll probably come to a last minute agreement and then they'll, you know, they'll parade each other up and, you know, shake each other's hands in front of the cameras and act like they saved the world or something. But to me, a lot of this is just, it's nonsense grandstanding that is just an unimaginable, irrational outcome if the worst case does actually come to fruition. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. They've had they've both had numerous opportunities over the last 20 years where both parties have had total control over government when they could have done something about mm -hmm. deficits. And none of them ever do it when they have control, but they have these battles over the deficit when there's this divided government and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's I don't know, it's sort of frustrating. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the you know, the way that the government seems to be operating in this increasingly haphazard sort of worrisome way. I don't know, maybe that's just me turning into more of an angry old man as I get older or something, <laughs> but I don't know. But it, it does seem to be true. It seems to like, it seems like we, like the parties are more divided and, you know, can agree on less and less with time. And even when, you know, like you said, even when they do have full power, they still don't seem to make very rational decisions. So I don't know. It doesn't give me a lot of faith, but I do. I do have, I guess, a misplaced faith that they're going to come to an agreement in the next few weeks. So, so that's a good uh, topic. So, what if they don't? So there are there have like in 2011, like I read uh, Bob Woodward's book, The Price of Politics, where he talked mm -hmm. about the debt showdown that happened in 2011, and they came close to not reaching a deal. Like it wasn't all just you know they were just putting on a show. Like they legitimately. There were forces like on the Republican side where they were saying, don't make a deal, like let it happen. What if they don't? Like what happens then? Like what do you think? What do you think happens next? Like say we go past June 1st and they never reach a deal. Then what happens? I I still think we don't technically default because I think that the I think the Fed and Treasury would have to intervene in the markets. And so the the president, you know, what happens on, let's say we get to June 1st and the treasury says, you know, hey, we're going to run out of money tomorrow. I think the president has to call an emergency meeting on May 31st. And, you know, they, he sits down with the, the Fed chair and treasury and they all agree that they're going to do something, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of different sort of like gimmicky workarounds, like um, they can sell premium bonds, they can... You know, people talk about like this trillion dollar coin. I sort of jokingly wrote about that in like 2011 because somebody, a lawyer actually was one of the first people who mentioned it on my blog back then. 
which it's a legitimate workaround, even though it's very, very gimmicky to obviously print a, a multi-trillion dollar coin or something. But there are workarounds. I mean, my preferred approach would be that I would basically, if I were President Biden, I would go to Powell and I would issue an executive order and I would say, you will fund the Treasury General account, which is the, the Treasury's account at the Fed. You will fund this account or you will let them run a, a negative overdraft. And this, you're going to do this until Congress figures out how to actually legitimately fund the Treasury General account. And so that's an interesting sort of outcome because you get into all sorts of legal outcomes where, like technically in 1981, the, the Treasury was no longer allowed to run negative overdraft. So you know, that's a law that will be broken by the executive order. Versus the court then has to decide, though, okay, is the negative overdraft rule dumber than defaulting and breaching the debt ceiling? And to me, if the courts have to decide this, I think the, the domino that falls, it has to be the debt ceiling, because there's no rational world in which you can argue that defaulting is the, you know, the most logical legal outcome. So you have to kind of decide, okay, is the negative overdraft rule a bad one or is the debt ceiling a bad one? And so, you know, the court has to force a decision then because you have all these weird contradictions in the laws right now where, you know, the you have lots of stupid rules in place that don't allow certain things to happen. And one of those dominoes, if we actually come to that point, one of those dominoes has to fall. And so the this would sort of force the issue to the courts. And I suspect the court then would order that the you know would probably come to the determination that the debt ceiling is the least logical of all these silly laws that we have in place and so i don't know that's kind of an interesting outcome almost because it forces all of us to come to an agreement about you know which one of these rules doesn't make sense and to me the obvious one being the debt ceiling you know you can if you can get to a situation where we eliminate the debt ceiling in the future you then eliminate all these silly debates for the rest of eternity. And we don't have to, you know, we keep having this, this debate every few years or so, or every few months. And it's like, you know, what are we doing? Like, how much do we hate ourselves that we keep having these silly discussions? Yeah, I agree. I guess, I mean, they could invoke the the 14th amendment. They could say, well, we're just going to ignore this and invoke the 14th amendment. And then it goes to the Supreme court. But then I would imagine there's probably a period of time between you know, the debt ceiling not getting raised and the court ruling that the debt ceiling is invalid, there would probably be this crazy period of time in the middle for the markets. Like, what, yeah, it how would do you think super, that would go? I think they, if they invoke the 14th, they still have to do, like Biden still has to do something else where he says he orders the Fed to allow a negative overdraft or to, you know, issue premium bonds or, I mean, like Treasury can sell assets. I mean, Treasury has like $5 trillion of assets that they could sell. But, you know, that's another one that seems sort of unnecessary. The negative overdraft to me is just the most logical because it's like, you know, if you, anyone who banks with a big bank, you know, like I'm sure at some point in my life, like I've run a negative overdraft just by mistake. And the the bank knows that, you know, I've got a high income or whatever. And they look at me and they say, okay, hey, we we credited your account and we're allowing you to run this overdraft or, you know, margin balance. Margin balance is probably a more recognizable, you know, example for a lot of the listeners where the bank just says, we know you have good credit. So we're going to allow you to run a negative overdraft here and, you know, pay us back in timely fashion. And, 
the crazy thing about this situation is that the Federal Reserve is literally the bank for the United States. Like the first bank of the United States was created literally to fund the government directly. And so there's nothing really unusual. I know we don't like to talk about all this in the sense that like the Fed might monetize the debt or whatever you want to call that and stuff. Or the Fed, you know, we, we don't want the Fed to look like they're directly printing money and directly, you know, issuing fiscal policy. But the reality is that historically, there's nothing strange about a central bank directly funding the government. And so, and especially given that the, the Federal Reserve was created to maintain liquidity in the financial system. And so to me, you know, what's a more perfect situation for the Fed to supply liquidity to the financial system than a situation where the government doesn't have the money it needs to be able to operate. And so it, that to me just seems like the most logical outcome here. And it, it also, you know, brings up a lot of sort of interesting theory in the sense that like, you know, does a government that prints its own money that has its own central bank, does it even need to sell bonds? Like that's the other sort of interesting thought experiment in all of this that a lot of people don't think about where, you know, do we, is it sort of a facade that we even like, if we even sell bonds to fund the government in the first place? Because theoretically, like the government could just do what the natural end case of quantitative easing is, where the government is essentially just issuing deposits to the private sector directly. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of crazy to think about. Like there would be, yeah, at that point, what is the point of issuing bonds? I've never yeah. even thought of it in those terms before. That's pretty wild. Yeah, and you get into sort of like the same debate with QE. It's like, you know, okay, well, if QE was essentially the equivalent of the government issuing a deposit directly to somebody, you know, even though it's a very indirect way of doing it, you get into this interesting sort of like theoretical debate of, well, what is the difference between a treasury bill? If the government issued nothing but treasury bills, what is really the difference between issuing just deposits directly, you know, if the Fed was crediting people's accounts directly with deposits versus crediting them with treasury bills when we run a deficit? Is there really that big of a difference? I guess not. When you really think about it and you strip it down, there really is no difference. Yeah, it's kind of, it's one of the things that when you start talking about, like when people say monetizing the debt, you know, in a lot of cases, I say, well, wait a minute, you know, 20% of the deficit is already treasury bills covered anyways. And it's like, isn't if a treasury bill, especially in corporate accounting, a treasury bill is a cash equivalent. Haven't we already monetized the debt? You know, so what would be yeah. the difference between, you know, just issuing nothing but treasury bills versus what we do now, where we kind of diversify it out across, you know, T notes and T bonds and all these different, you know, maturities. But I don't know. Maybe I'm totally wrong about how inflationary that would be relative to what we do now, but I really strongly suspect it would not be that different than the way that we do things now where we issue bonds. Right. Hmm. Pretty interesting. Well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see if they, re hopefully they reach a deal and all of this. Remains yeah, I have a feeling that none of this is actually going to end up you know, being that important because I have a feeling that, I mean, hopefully this, hopefully in the next week or so, they just... You know, probably by the time you even publish this story, might not even be a, a headline anymore. Yeah, hopefully. So let's talk about a little bit about the discipline fund, the ETF. So, what is the discipline fund's approach to investing? You know, it's really at its core, it's it's a value approach to managing the risk in an, in a multi asset portfolio where you have stocks and bonds, and you're trying to 
I think, throttle the equity market risk to some degree using a, a sort of value-like approach. And so the, you know, I came up with this idea back in, I don't know, 2014 or so, and I started managing a lot of portfolios using this sort of counter-cyclical approach. And it's it's similar to the way that I think about government policy being sort of counter-cyclical. But the the interesting thing with financial markets is that the financial markets, especially the equity market, tends to be very, very pro-cyclical. And so if you look at the relative market cap of stocks versus bonds over time, the pro-cyclicality of the stock component drives the majority of the differential there. And so the a lot of people don't think about this, but the, the size of the stock market versus the bond market, it ebbs and flows in a huge way across time. And it typically, when the in periods where you have big equity market booms, the equity market typically will become like 50% of all outstanding financial assets. And when you get a financial bust, it, it ebbs back down to like 35%. And you get this sort of consistent cyclical ebb and flow in the size of the stock market over time. And the, the interesting thing about that is that when the stock market becomes a bigger component, the the amount of risk that you're taking from that equity component is much larger as a percentage of your overall financial assets now. And so the interesting thing that I, I did looking at the data was I realized if you followed a truly efficient market hypothesis approach, your portfolio would always rebalance to whatever this relative market cap was, assuming you were a multi-asset stock bond investor. And the interesting thing with that is that if you did the exact opposite, your portfolio actually performs better. Because when you apply that sort of efficient market approach, what you're always doing is you're always rebalancing back to the highs and you're always rebalancing to more stocks at the lows. It, it doesn't make intuitive sense and it doesn't make fundamental sense. And so doing the opposite to me, not only generates better risk-adjusted returns, but to me, more importantly, the thing that it does is it helps people behave better. And I think that's the thing that people struggle with, especially with the stock market the most, is people have trouble, I think, understanding what the time horizon of the stock market is. And so buffering that the amount of risk you're taking in that, that portion of your portfolio can help you behave better, which can help you actually perform better because you end up not making a lot of the big behavioral mistakes that people sometimes do. And so it's similar to what John Bogle actually, even though people think of him as like this super passive investor, Bogle actually implemented something super similar where he talked about like in the year 2000, he rebalanced his portfolio from 70-30 to like 25-75. And he was using a more of a pure value approach where he was looking at basically PE ratios and he, he identified, you know, hey, this market, even, even though I'm a passive investor, this market makes me really uncomfortable but I don't want to take all my chips off the table. So I'm going to rebalance my portfolio in a way that makes it just more behaviorally tolerable. And so the, the discipline fund is basically like, a, it's an implementation of that. We, we added a number of other metrics to sort of diversify the, the way that the underlying algorithm works because a, a pure value approach just, it, it actually is like too pro-cyclical, meaning that like, like if you look at something like the CAPE ratio, the CAPE ratio, it jumped in 2000 and it never really mean reverted. And so in order to build a, an underlying index that really works in a systematic counter-cyclical way, you need something that is is basically more pro-cyclical than what a lot of the, the valuation ratios 
are consistent with. So we added a, num a number of other metrics that create a more consistently cyclical trend in the way that the underlying index works, but it's really designed to be sort of a systematic way of rebalancing a multi-asset portfolio that that buffers a lot of the equity market risk during periods where the the stock market is likely to be unusually exposed to high volatility, lower risk adjusted returns. Gotcha. So you're never out of stocks. You never do the all in all out thing. So you're always like we throttle it so that the the maximum allocation is 70% equities and the minimum is 30. So even in the even in the the most risk averse environment, you still have some exposure to the equity market, but you're really buffering the amount of that exposure in certain environments. Gotcha. And then you're making some change. You're still making some changes to the allocation in the hopes to reduce volatility in the long run and make sure that you're not hyper exposed to equities when they're Bingo. when they're crazy. Okay. Yeah. So, like in an environment like right now, and the bond piece is dynamic too. In that the like right now the bond pieces it has no corporate bonds in it, so it follows the same sort of thinking that. In an environment like right now, you're in this sort of weird, higher risk than normal type of environment. We, according to the index, we've sort of been in this environment since like really like the middle of like 2021, where it's typically environments where like when the, the yield curve inverts, the Fed's being very aggressive, and you get the combination of that with, with relatively good economic growth and very low unemployment. The low unemployment thing is really crucial because- Unemployment or employment is the way that corporations really leverage their balance sheets. And so this one's sort of counterintuitive because the stock market tends to experience its largest annual drawdowns when the unemployment rate is really low. And so that one kind of you know catches some people off guard because people don't think, well, a low unemployment rate is good. That means the economy is you know humming and things are going well. But the reality is that a low unemployment rate is generally consistent with corporations being highly leveraged because they're, yeah. they're basically they've they've hired so many people that they're over levered to their their biggest cost and the way that companies manage their risk in large part is by shedding workers and so typically when you get big stock market drawdowns big economic downturns it tends to be they tend to to come during periods where the unemployment rate is really low because corporations are sort of overlevered relative to the the amount of demand that's sustainable. Yeah, and when you think about the big equity tops in history like 1969, 1999, it's always unemployment is super low at those times. Yep. So should we be concerned now unemployment's at a 50-year low? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't you know, it's one of these things where I I don't like to think in terms of like you know, is the market going to crash? I like to think in terms of like, right? Know, yeah, is the the likelihood of lower risk adjusted returns seems higher than normal in this sort of an environment. And that, to me, that make it makes a lot of sense to you know hope for the best, but be prepared for something that is going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I also like what you said about how it helps investors behave better. I mean, one of the most depressing graphs I think in investing is that graph of average investor returns where your average investor earns like 1%. Right. And they would probably be better off in just a super conservative portfolio rather than like constantly moving in and out of stocks based on how they're feeling. And a more conservative portfolio that smooths out volatility will probably get them a better result for the long run. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've seen it just so many times in my career where, you know, it's interesting, especially years like last year. Like I, I've kind of come to this weird conclusion that you really, especially when you manage other people's money, you have to manage to behavior a lot of the times. And so like one of the things that people love about like a value investing approach or like a high dividend paying approach is that people are, they're more behaviorally comfortable, even though, you know, there might be data that says that, you know, a momentum approach or a growth approach outperforms a value approach, whatever, you know, factor you'd want to look at in, in terms of like these different ways to skin the cat here. But the the thing that's that I've sort of become most adherent of is that you really need to do you need the, the portfolio that you're going to be comfortable with that's the portfolio that is going to perform the best for you because it's the one you're likely to stick with and it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a momentum portfolio or growth or value or whatever it is if you can't stick with it you're going to make a mistake along the way because you're going to go through a year like last year where nothing works and then you know you're going to you're going to shed it at the worst time and that sort of a behavioral mistake will cause it'll cause years and years of poor returns because you just didn't stick with a strategy that was sustainable yeah i totally agree so before we wrap up is there anything that you'd like to add for the audience yeah don't panic right now i got it's crazy how <laughs> it's crazy how much i'm having this conversation where i <laughs> i have to explain to people you know the this the craziness of this environment and you know, the, the uncertainty around, you know, like we're seeing, I think I saw before I hopped on here, treasury bills were up to like 6% or something crazy like that on the one month, which is like, you know, it's, I, it's sort of ironic that the debate over fiscal responsibility is costing the government money <laughs> in the, in the one month treasury bill market. But no, I think you know, the, the biggest, especially the lesson of the last few years and a big part of my framework is a lot of, and a lot of maintaining good behavior is maintaining proper time horizons. I've become a big advocate of what I've started calling all duration investing. And it's, it's really understanding time horizons of specific instruments relative to your financial needs. And so like in that model, the stock market, for instance, is an 18 year instrument. And I think it's the, the superpower of really good, especially value-based investors is that they maintain proper time horizons. Like I think you can make a really strong argument that Warren Buffett isn't necessarily a great, great, you know, stock picker as much as he's a very disciplined manager of time inside of his portfolio. He tends to pick really solid companies. And then he, he lets them play out. Yeah. And he lets them actually perform well. Extremely long people, holding periods. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people will churn their accounts and they're impatient and they're, they're just undisciplined in the way that they, they actually manage the way that the instruments are designed to operate. And so, yeah, I mean, not panicking is a big part of that is just a it's a temporal conundrum with people where they just they're not patient enough to let things actually come to fruition. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And what are the best places to learn about you and, and reach you and learn about your funds? Yeah, disciplinefunds.com is really the primary place. We've started, we've kind of moved everything from pragmatic capitalism onto that website. And that's where all the information on the fund is. And uh, we write a new, more research-oriented blog called Discipline Alerts on the Discipline Funds website. So, and there's a lot of different resources, a lot of, um, we've started publishing a, a YouTube channel called 3-Minute Macro, which is 
literally just three minute segments on typically either a current event or something sort of educational. So between those two places, that's probably the best place to find me. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great talking. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.